Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard, but by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. Zach flying solo on presenting duties today. Alex is massively sulking about the fact that she isn't here for this one because we have one of our favourite people of all time back on History Hack. We are joined by Gally Jaffe, who folks will remember has been on a number of times before, most recently talking about how in the future people are going to dig up Harry Potter ones and think we were all completely barking mad. She's a freelance archaeology lecturer. Uh, if you're not following her on Twitter, search for Onion Goddess. She does some brilliant uh, tweets and threads on archaeology that personally I absolutely love. Gally, welcome back. How are you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine, you know. Um, everybody's waiting to see what's going to happen. You know, we're all we're all um, researching military history, and everything is very contemporary right now. <laughs> yeah, isn't it just? It's, we we won't talk about uh, the Twitter sphere and everybody with their their hot takes are on stuff. We will move uh, swiftly on because today we're going to talk about. Something that I'm going to be honest, I'm an absolute dunce on. We're going to talk about Masada. Um, I can only tell you that I've read one book on Masada in my life and I found it absolutely fascinating. I'm not going to even pretend to know what I'm talking about or, or be knowledgeable. So let's jump in with the basics here. What's the context behind the siege of Masada? When are we looking at and why was Masada as a site seen as significant? Um, well, the context is is the Great Jewish Revolt uh, during the first century CE. Um, it's basically a revolt that began began somewhere around sixty seven CE. Um, the the you know the main instigation was riots 
Actually, we would call them today pogroms against, really against Jews um, in the city of Caesarea in, uh, in Israel, in nowadays Israel. It's, it's, it's interesting because you can actually quite equate it to the famous Kristallnacht, which uh, preceded World War II. Um, it was really a ransacking of Jewish houses and shops um, because it's all a result of political nuances and new laws and basically saying that the people who are the important ones are not Jews and the Christians, let's say early Christians, pagans more likely, um, just use that as an excuse to, to go against Jews. And then it was a surprise because no one expected it, but a revolt began against the Roman forces, which began in Caesarea and began to spread out all over Israel. It lasted for six years. And Masada is, is the last fort, the last man standing, if you will. Even following the fall of Jerusalem, Masada was still standing still, and still fighting against Romans. That's why it's such important. It's, it's, it's perceived in, in Israel and Judaism as some kind of a symbol of standing against oppression, uh, specifically against religious oppression um, in, in, that, in that line of view. So that's, that's basically where we are. We're talking about uh, people like uh, Titus and Vespasian, who are actually uh, the main leaders of the forces who, who fought against the rebellion. That's, that's what they do. Um, you know, when Titus had to, Vespasian um, had to leave in in the middle. Um, so Titus, his son, took over. He was the one who uh, felled Gamla, the famous siege of Gamla. And then he felled Jerusalem. Uh, there's a lot of literature, contemporary literature, mainly from Josephus um, Flavius, um, which is have to keep in mind when you read that, that it's problematic because he liked to uh, enhance his stories. He liked to, to let his, imagina his imagination flow sometimes. And somehow in all the instances, he's always the most important person and the one who's in charge of everything. Even though we know he was a prisoner, even though we know that for at least half of the siege and half of the revolt, he wasn't in, in the land of Israel at all. So if you read that, when you read that, Keep it in mind. Isn't that true of a lot of Roman writers? I always feel that there's this inclination to, to embellish and in some cases to focus on what their yeah. patrons want to push forward. Yes, it, it is. Uh, to an extent, yes, you're right. But we have to, specifically on Josephus, because we know the facts, he was a prisoner of the Spessian and he was taken back with him to Rome in the middle of the revolt. And he still, you know, when he writes about Masada, there's a big, like, uh, you know, a big speech given by the leader of forces on the mountain. Um, if you remember, there's a famous uh, uh, president's speech in Independence Day in the movie. That's everybody's always, oh, it's a famous scene. Something like that. Now, there's no way Josephus could have known what was said on the mountain. He wasn't there. And maybe we're not even sure to this day that two women survived. What are the chances he met them and they remembered every word? So uh, that's an example. And, you know, giving himself credit for building all the defenses in the Galilee against the Romans, you know, doesn't make sense. Okay, talk us through the site itself, because if anybody's ever seen an aerial photograph of this place and people just go Google it, it looks 
like an impossible place to besiege. I mean, it's practically clinging to a cliff. It's crazy. I can't even count the amount of times I've been. And I'm a biblical archaeologist. <laughs> it's not like I'm. It's not like I I, I study this day to day. But um, it, it yes, it's 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 sitting on on a mountain crop that's on all sides. It's it's just cliffs. It's cliffs. There's no there's no way. There's there. Today there are two ways, but originally there was one way to get up the mountain. It's called the Snake Trail. Everybody can understand why. Just zigzag up the mountain. It's on the eastern side that uh, that faces the Jordan River and the land of Jordan today. Um, and it's originally the person who built it was the famous Herod, Herod the Great, the one from the stories about Jesus. And he built it as some kind of summer vacation house. Now, he has a whole palace on the northern side, which is built out of three steps. If you look at the pictures of Masada, you can see that the northern side has three steps. And each step is actually a story of the palace. Uh, it's, the, the bottom step was now like in the last decade. It uh, had gone under a lot of restoration work, and they redid the frescoes, and it's, it's stunning. You stand there and... And you can only go wow. And I've been there a lot of times, and every time it's wow once again. Um, keep in mind, it's a site that if you decide to go into one of the areas, you have to go downstairs and then back up. Uh, so take that in consideration. It has one of the biggest mikvehs, which is a ritual bath, a Jewish ritual bath, one of the biggest ever found in Israel. I'm talking about something like, I think, 10 by 8 meters uh, with stairs going all the way down, stairs that are carved into the rock and then um, um, plastered over. So everything looks very smooth and nice. Uh, it has at least two huge water cisterns together, rainwater, because we're in the middle of the desert. Now, give, given there are uh, uh, streaming rivers all over the place, so it's not like there isn't a water source on site. And winter, when it rains, the area is usually has a lot of floods in the river, so you can collect water. Um, but they have big water systems on the site. Uh, there's a synagogue. Um, so basically, it was built as a sort of a, a hotel resort for Herod, and it developed into a big city uh, later. And, and it ended in, you know, in the revolt. Interestingly enough, there's one more layer of uh, settlement, and it's not on the mountain, it's on the bottom. There are two caves which were settled, used during the Chalcolithic period. We're talking about somewhere around 5000 BC. Um, and that's the only two phases you have in the sun. There's nothing in the middle, there's no Bronze Age, no Iron Age, no nothing. You have two caves from 5000 BC and a settlement from the first period, first century BC. See. At what point does it become fortified then? If it starts off as this sort of palatial residency hey, type place? During the revolt. During the revolt. The fortifications oh. are for are built against and it's not there's not too much to fortify in Masada. It's it's naturally as it is. Um, you know, the accounts the accounts tell of, of, of amazing stories, and these are things that we know from other places, so they're fairly true. Um, like that the the rebels, the Jewish rebels on the mountain would pour hot oil that was used down on the soldiers and, and things like that. And the Romans basically built, this is also something you can see from above, built eight camps around Masada. 
in circulates. Interesting point for English people, the designs of the camps of Masada are pretty much uh, one by one the same as, let's say, uh, Villanova on, on Hadrian's uh, wall. Interesting. Which is interesting because it shows us the extent of the empire and how everything is basically the same, if it's built in England or if it's built in Palestine. So it's interesting. It really is. And it, you see that they're different because the area is different and the materials are different, but you can see that the basic design is the same design as forts on Hadrian's wall. And given that they have mm, between 50 to 60 year gap between the two buildings, Hadrian's wall is 120 uh, CE, if I remember more or less. Um, so, again, there's not much to fortify. The problem was when the Romans actually got to the mountain. Then then things got bad. Yeah, uh, we, we should probably head there next, shouldn't we? I mean, what happens over the course of this siege? Is this sort of textbook Roman siege tactics? I have a vague memory that there's a siege ramp that ends up there's, being there's, built. They're um, actually, yeah. Um, the siege ramp is the last effort of the Romans. Um, there were a few uh, instances where they attempted other ways and tried to climb the mountain, escalated through this trail. And then what I said earlier about uh, the whole issue with the hot oil being dumped on them, stuff like that, which made it hard. And then they actually devised, they built a, a huge, like, uh, it, it's a ramp, but it's, it's built on, on a skeleton made of logs, wooden logs. They built huge skeleton wooden logs. This is built, interestingly, on the western side of the mountain, not on the eastern side. And then they poured dirt all over it, and they actually built a ramp riding up, all the way up to the uh, to the walls of the, of the, not say fort, let's say settlement. And you can see the breach in the wall. To this day, you can see the breach in the wall. The most amazing thing about this ramp is this, that you can, it's the second way to reach Masada today if you're going to visit, you can either climb from the ramp or climb from the snake trail. The ramp is easy, FYI, if anyone's planning on going to visit. When you walk along the ramp, you can see on the sides, in the, in the sections of the ramp, you can see, still see the wooden logs, the actual Roman 2,000-year-old wooden logs, because we're in the desert. And the dry air and the dry climate uh, preserves organic material. So you can basically touch, don't break it, don't take anything, it's against the law. You can touch an actual 2,000-year-old Roman log from the siege of the Tsar. You can just see them, they're, they're just sticking out of the ground. It's amazing. Um, and this is all thanks to the desert, of course. So they built the, the ramp, and through that they breached the wall, and then they entered the city. And then that was basically... Now, again, if we equate it to a movie, that's the moment you know that, okay, that's it. No one's getting out of this alive. There's no way. Do we have any sense of people trying to escape? I mean, you mentioned about how... Uh, actually, before we get to that, shall we, shall we rewind to the controversy? Because there is supposedly a mass suicide, isn't there? But then that's been disputed by some archaeologists. So talk us through the arguments that are going on here. The suicide story goes like this. There are two suicide stories in the, in the whole event of the Great Revolt of the Jews against the Romans. The first one is in Gamla, which also Gamla is, is it's by the Sea of Galilee on the, on, the, on the Gilan Heights. 
And it's also, it, it's called Gamla. Gamal is, is, a, is a camel in Hebrew. And it looks like a hump of a camel. And it's just, and it's got steep, steep uh, sides. And in Gamla as well, we also know through the writings of Isipas that people actually just threw their children and then threw themselves down uh, when the Romans actually breached the, the town. Second story is the one in Masada. Now in Masada, it becomes more interesting because um, when Yadin, we'll get to the excavations in a moment, um, but when Yadin excavated, he found um, the, let's call it, for lack of a better phrase, the lottery stones. We actually found potsherds, which we call ostracons. Ostracons are potsherds that have writing. And he found, if I remember correctly, 12 ostracons with names on them. The assumption was, Yadin's assumption was, and this excavated in the 70s. So you have to understand that the whole atmosphere towards archaeology, biblical archaeology, um, Jewish archaeology was different. The whole atmosphere was more in the lines of, okay, this happened, we just have to find it. Um, much less doubt than today. And um, the, the, what he concluded was that these are actually the lottery names and that they pulled, they, they actually pulled out names and the last one was actually, the one who pulled out his name last was the one to stand last. He'd have to make sure everybody died, whoever didn't kill himself. He would kill him and then kill himself. This goes back to the speech that I talked about earlier, in which the speech, it's really, it's, it's, whether it's real or not, it's a beautiful piece of, 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 of you know, of leadership pep talk. Because what he basically says there is that we're not going to not going to go into, uh, to be um, prisoners of war. And we're going to kill ourselves to show the Romans that we died out of our own choice and not because we didn't have any other choice. We're keeping, it's a, a way of saying, we're still keeping control of our lives. Plus they, uh, um, they ransacked all the food. They didn't leave anything for the Romans. You know, it's, it's a famous tactic for all, through all history that you conquer a place and then you can use whatever is left to supply your army. Um, the famous scorched earth of Stalin. So he didn't invent anything. People on the side did it 2,000 years before. Um, so um, now in later years, yeah, people have been starting to say that maybe there wasn't a mass suicide and maybe it's much, much less heroic and romantic than we want to imagine it. And because Masada for the land of Israel as a political entity and for the Jewish people has become some sort of symbol. You know, there's a famous Israeli saying, um, again, Masada shall not fall. It's like, you know, a saying, oh, we're strong and we won't let this happen, blah, blah, blah. Um, so it's kind of an ethos that, that um, people are not going easily in, uh, into the hands of the enemy and are, are willing to give their life for what's important for them and keeping keeping their Jewish aspect of their life it's so important to keep the Jewish aspect that they prefer to die to lose it so and again it, it all ties in with, with the political atmosphere and people trying to elevate Masada into some kind of big heroic story you know to bring the people together um, but if you look at the facts I think it's fairly right to say that we are not sure that there was a suicide. 
can't say that it wasn't. Why we can't say that it wasn't goes back to Josephus. We can't completely trust what he wrote. Have any bodies ever been found on the site? Not that I know. And that's, that's amazing because you would expect something. Because another thing, it's interesting, uh, Masada, like Gamla, which are two of the main uh, settlements that rebelled against the Romans and they had a big, big famous siege story, neither of these settlements was ever uh, settled again afterwards. No one came back to live there. Neither at Masada, neither at Gamla. It's kind of like uh, Carthage. It was like uh, considered a cursed place until Julius Caesar arrived. Um, but again, we don't even have that Julius Caesar moment. There's nothing. There's nothing following the fall of Masada in 1973. Uh, uh. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. See, nothing. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. That's so odd because, like you say, it's a, it's a site that hasn't been disturbed. It's also a site that preserves pretty well because it's it's desert so you'd expect uh, a, i mean look people die in a siege that's the reality of sieges they would have had to have been buried so that's so it's interesting odd, because unusual peculiar it's it's interesting because um if there's no bodies you ask yourself okay what happened so did the romans clean the site out some kind of plan to re-inhabit it differently and then never got around to do it uh, it's maybe possible, but then you have to think, okay, we're talking about 73 CE. The Romans in the land of Israel were still in power until somewhere around, let's say, 380. Okay, something like that. Just ballpark of a number. So it's not like they five years later they weren't there and they didn't have the time. They had 300 years to do it. I know there weren't any Jews around to bury people. And if they buried them, where did they? So it could be a case of bodies left strewn around um, to the forces of nature and different animals. And, you know, uh, there are tigers in, in, in the area of the Dead Sea. Um, you have uh, eagles. You have, you have 
and animal populations that will devour these, these bodies. Um, and taking into consideration 2,000 years, you know, it's not enough time for a skeleton to disappear. I personally have excavated a 14,000-year-old skeleton, so, you know, 2,000 years is nothing. But don't open your eyes, it's true. Because <laughs> this is a radio show, people won't realize, but my eyebrows have just disappeared up into my yeah. hairline. Uh, the idea of a 14,000-year-old skeleton. But sorry, you carry on, Gally. Yeah, so so there's no... It, 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 it's an excellent question, which people have been asking. Where, where are the people? Where? We don't know. That's incredible. Um, so if bodies haven't been found on the site, what has been found? I mean, we talked about the ramp already, but do we have any other evidence of, of siege archaeology, anything that predates um, the, the siege in terms of the whole, so We have the whole range of life on Masada pre and during siege, everything. We have uh, uh, storage jars. Beautiful Roman storage jars. A lot of them were found uh, intact. These excavations, which were again headed by Igaliadin, which is one of the famous uh, archaeologists in the history of Israel, he's one of the of the generation of archaeology of Israel's founders. Do you know the restoration line is? I personally don't, and some of our yeah, listeners like to line. A restoration line is actually a line of cement that's put above the original find. So below the line is what originally was found, and above it is rest restored. So you know, if you look at the wall, you know what was found and what's what's actually added to give you some kind of concept of how it looked. He was the one who invented the restoration line, Miguel Um You look at, it's amazing to look at the photos on that period because it's such a different world. You can see uh, women volunteers in bikinis and sandals excavating on the site, something you would never see today. Uh, it, it was a different world. And uh, the, again, the excavation itself was, was considered a national project of importance because of Mistada and the whole history. Um, so it was given a lot of funding, it was given a lot of leverage, it was given a lot of help. So they found a lot of things. They were given a huge budget to excavate in those times. We had to do the math. So um, we have storage jars, you have uh, plates and, and dishes, and you have cups. You have, and then you get to the siege and you can find actual um, catapult stones. You find them on the site. Um, there's tons of them. You can find uh, bronze war or bronze arrowheads and bronze spearheads. Some of the cases you can also find the actual candle, which we usually don't find because if it's in a Mediterranean climate, then it doesn't survive. But again, this is desert, wood survives. Um, we, we basically, you can, they open, no, I think it was 15 years ago, the site was declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And then again, they poured in funds and then they built a lovely museum at the bottom of the mountain. And it's really, if you go there, do not skip the museum. The site itself is amazing and, and, and spend as much time as you want on the mountain. But do go to the museum because that's where you see, you actually see the day-to-day -day life and you can see it. And it, it's a huge amount of of vessels, because keep in mind that this site stopped living more or less from today to tomorrow. The Romans breached the wall, there was some fighting, then there was a whole event of the yes or no suicide, and that's it. So everything just stayed in place. No one cleared the site, no one left, no one took his valuables and ran away, um, like you find in other sites, a lot of sites where you can actually 
fine. You can see that people actually abandoned it. You can see what's missing. Uh, everything is there because no one left and no one had time to take anything from it. Again, because it's a desert, we also have uh, finds like, uh, uh, you know, um, pits, date pits and olive pits, which of course uh, go directly to the C14 lab, give you a, an excellent date. But given the story of Masada, we don't need to run a C14 test to know the date because it's not the same, but more or less you can equate it to Pompeii in that, in that, in that area. Can I ask about the two escapees? You mentioned that there are two women who it's thought managed to get out. Um, what do we know about them? And also, are there stories about other people sort of trying to get out sooner and not being allowed to? Is there any sense no. of dissent or do we just not have any accounts of it? Not that I know. Not that I know of people trying to get out because, again, it was the people who stayed in Masada were, they knew as far as, as, as we know. They knew they were the last resort. They were the last post standing. Um, and it was, it was an important thing for them. Um, we don't know too much about the two women. We, we, we know that they were taken hostage, which again, um, gives, uh, and again, it, it causes a problem with the whole suicide theory because if there was a mass suicide and the last person standing was supposed to kill himself, why are the two women still alive? Um, we don't know much about it. We, we only know that there's some kind of attempt by uh, Josephus to connect those two women to himself to make his story seem more plausible. Um, but not too much, no. So here's a, a million dollar question. What's your best guess about what actually happened? Do you buy the, the suicide theory or do you think that it's just too problematic? I honestly... I'm honestly having a hard time deciding about this. It's not the first time I've been asked. Um, because on one side, we do have the Ostrakarns and, and the names. So it seems, it sounds plausible. It sounds plausible. And, you know, the whole idea of committing a group suicide not to fall into Roman hands. And, you know, we, we are deciding our own future and our own fate we're taking into our own hands. Um, it sounds... It sounds possible, excuse me for saying this, but it sounds very Jewish, you know, where we're, um, but uh, in a good way, yes. But um, I can't say that I completely agree with the theory, but I can't say that I can completely discard it. So I think, I think we need more evidence. I think, I think we're still missing some valuable information that we might not ever have. This is archaeology. You might not ever have the whole story. Usually you don't have the whole story. If you ever meet an archaeologist who knows how to explain everything to you, know that he's lying. Remember that I said that. That's the truth. Um, so I think we're just still missing some parts of the story. And we really want, you know, one side wants to believe his side and the other really wants to believe his side. So everybody grasps to their uh, ideas. But I'm not sure that if we look at the facts, Point blank face value. I'm not sure we can decide either way. What would you need? What would be the the thing that would potentially clear this up? I mean, if somebody said, "Look, I'm going to give you an endless budget," you know, where would you go and dig? What would you hope to find? Are there any sort of gaps, any places where you think, "Yes, but why didn't somebody go and excavate 
this section? Um, okay, I'll answer two parts. First of all, if, if you ask me what I'm looking for, what's missing to make this, to understand if the story of the, of the suicide is true or not, then I would say there are two options. Either give me a skeleton and let me see if he has wounds that are in correlation with an act of suicide. I would assume maybe some kind of, of trauma to the neck or the head or something like that. Um, I mean, if you find a skeleton and he's got cuts on his arms, that, well, maybe if he cut his wrist, it depends where. Anyway, it's either that or some kind of written document on the Roman side uh, documenting the story. Those are the only two options I could think of from an archaeological point of view that would shed light on this on this debate and maybe, maybe solve it once and for all. But are there gaps in the research? There's always gaps. First of all, I'm not sure how it works, let's say, in England and Europe yet, but I know that in Israel, it's not a law, it's not a rule, but it's accepted that when you excavate a site, you always leave areas unexcavated for future research, i.e., younger people, new ideas, new technology. There's, today, we're, we're in Israel, they're using uh, new technology. They're using, two years ago, they used an infrared camera that NASA built for space to reread ostracons from Tel Arad and actually found new inscriptions that weren't known from potsherds that were found in 1963. So we leave areas unexcavated for future generations. Uh, so there are, and there's even an excavation ongoing on the mountain in the past uh, five years, I think, in one of the caves, like it's a, not to call it a cave, it's a cavity in the head of the mountain. So like people used it, they actually built, um, they're finding, again, what they're finding is, and this is, to me, it's the most uh, exciting finds. It's, it's the daily life stuff. You know, we all know about the kings and the rulers and, you know, pharaohs and blah, blah, blah. But I think it's more interesting to ask, okay, so the small, the one, the little farmer, he got up in the morning, what, he drank his coffee, he went to the field. What did he do? How does his life look like? And that's the household archaeology is a more interesting aspect. And that's what they're finding now, I think. There are unexcavated areas. Will they give us the answer? I'm not sure because the whole, the whole area where finds related to the siege were found is on the northern side of the mountain because that's the closest area to the siege. So, and that's also where the palace is. It's a more, let's say, it was a more, it was an area that was more easy to to, to settle it, to to congregate in for the uh, rebels. The northern, the southern side is. It's, it's much more sparse. Uh, there's a lot of like empty areas. You have like a few columbariums, which are actually like uh, towers to raise uh, doves. Um, so the answers would be on the northern side. If it's a big if, if they're there at all. Wow, just wow. Um, I'm loving this. Let's Let's sort of move things into the sort of memory side of things and the, the sort of the, the modern, if you will. Why, especially with all of this controversy over what did and didn't happen, why is the site seen as being so important in Jewish history? Does this have a sort of a resonance amongst the Jewish community? Is this sort of one of those words that you can use and people instantly sort of understand 
what it means to Jewish community? It's important in, in, in perspective of, of, yeah, let's say the world Jewish community, because Misada is a symbol. Um, and this all, you have to look at it through the, let's say, through while wearing glasses that take into consideration the Holocaust. These things go together. Um, the Holocaust was, of course, a huge trauma for the Jewish nation. Um, understandably, no one will argue that. And it's also, some people don't like to admit it, it's also one of the reasons the state of Israel was, was, uh, uh, um, was established so quickly following the war. We're talking 45, the war ended, 48, the state of Israel was already established um, to give a place for the Jews. And it's seen as a symbol of we won't go down easily again. And it's a famous story. It was famous before the excavations. It's a story well known because of Josephus. With all these problematic issues, it's still a document. It's still a documentation. Um, so, so it was known already. It, it was taught. Uh, so then when the actual finds came out of the ground and served as proof, and again, we can debate if they committed suicide or not. We cannot debate if there was or wasn't a siege, if there was or wasn't a rebellion. There was. A rebellion was all throughout the land of Israel. The siege was there for a year, I think, maybe, maybe a little less. And again, this is a siege. These people are rebelling against the Romans, against a huge Roman empire, after their capital and their major temple had already fallen. Jerusalem fell in 70 CD. This is three years later, and they're still fighting against the Romans. There's hardly any central leadership in this is like a gang of people who just say, we're not going down. We won't let you take us down. And you add to that, that according to the accounts, they had a pretty good run. They gave the Romans a hard time. So when you put all that together, you're talking about a nation of people who's just who's still licking their wounds from the Holocaust. When you, when you consider that the fines start coming out somewhere in the 70s. Again, this is barely 30 years post the Holocaust. Um, it proves a very heroic story in Jewish history. And people cling to it. And it, it, it grew naturally. That's, that's one thing you can't say. You can't say that the story of Masada was stuffed down people's throat. It grew naturally. People just took it and, and, and turned it into what it is today. Um, is it a little bit let's say, nationalistic, yes. Uh, you can't go around it, it is. Um, but, but you can understand why that happened. If you put all that aside, what you have here is a site full of archaeological finds, which you can actually correlate to a, to a written document contemporary at the same time. Even with its issues, there's a lot that works together, a lot. So, um, and there, it doesn't happen too much, especially, you know, if talking, uh, let's say if we, if we go to the realm of biblical archaeology, um, only when you reach, let's say, the 8th century BC, you start to see correlation between the biblical text and the archaeological find in a way that's hard to dispute. Let's say the famous siege, the famous uh, Babylonian siege of Jerusalem, we, we have it in the ground, we do. 
uh, as opposed, let's say, to the Davidic and Solomonic stories. I think we did an episode about that sometime here. I did one with Alex, I think. So this is much later, of course, but still, it's, it's pretty amazing when things work out together in, in such a spectacular way. And when the whole background is so heroic and we have people who are still, uh, you know, recuperating, then it just, it just happened. It just happened organically. I think there's no, it's one of those stories. Today you have people and like political movements trying to build this and that narrative and, and put it into the story of, of history of, of the Jewish people. This isn't the case. This is just, it grew out of the people. And, and it's, it is what it is today. Yeah, it's just, I mean, you can't dispute it, can you? It is just there. The only issue for people to debate is quite how did it end? Um, yeah. You mentioned that it became a UNESCO World Heritage Site, uh, yeah. I think. Today, it's a massive tourist attraction. I believe you mentioned about the museum. What challenges does that pose for folks like you who want to preserve this site for archaeological study? Because on the one hand, great, you know, you've got people taking an interest and hopefully they bring in money, which can be then poured into further investigation. But the flip side to that is that people walking a site physically changes the site. You know, there's the natural wear and tear. So how is that kind of issue being dealt with at Masada? Yeah. I'll just, I'll just throw in a, a small remark that the money coming in from tourism doesn't support the archaeology. Okay, <laughs> that's a shame. Tourism, that's a okay. massive shame. Okay. It is, yeah, but archaeology is something that has to find a way to support itself, sadly. Um, but, uh, yeah, first of all, um, there's a lot of, well, you can't go around, you can't open a site for people to visit and not expect the site to, to deteriorate. You can do, and there is restoration work going all the time, all along, um, but, but there's only a certain extent to which you can do that. Um, as, a, as in regards to further archaeology um, uh, research, like I said earlier, there is an excavation ongoing. I think, I think it's five, six years now, because I remember last or the time before last, I was on, on at Masada. We saw the actual area. You can see it's, it's like it's all fenced over because if someone falls in, in the hole, that's, that's a big problem. So it's all fenced and closed and signed. And, you know, and there's like red tape around so no one will um, go in. Um, but it's a small area. You have to you have to understand that Masada, when you, you can't grasp it until you're on top, but when you reach the top, then you understand how huge of a place it is. It's huge. It's really, really big. So one or two excavation squares, which are like five by five meters square, it's not a lot. It doesn't interrupt the the tourism. And you know what? If it even if it interrupts tourism a little bit, so be it. So be it. Because tourism will will Come and go as the time flows, but um, but if you got a chance to do some more research and understand the site more, then eventually the tourism will will gain from that. So uh, you should do it. Um, but wear and tear there is in every site all over. I'm I'm sure that they're dealing with the same questions uh, in places like Hadrian's Wall or, or Glastonbury or whatever. Um, there it's even, you have high walls in Glastonbury, fallen people, it's even more dangerous. You know? In Israel, there's a site that in the Golan Heights that was actually, the synagogue was rebuilt to its original size 
you know, talking about five, high, five meter high walls from the Byzantine period. And once every few months, one of the stones falls down. It's, it's really dangerous. Uh, I don't know why they open it to the public. I would, I would never let people go inside, but it's not my decision. Uh, you know, it's a beautiful place. It really, I understand what they're trying to do because it's synagogue and Judas and blah, blah, blah. I don't think it's worth <laughs> the risk, personally. Well, um, I mean, that's something to end on, isn't it? Gally, it's been brilliant. Alex is going to be seething. I'm, I'm very smug that I got this one. Um, and she sadly wasn't able to, to make it. Um, she is not going to be happy with me when I record with her later. It's been an absolute joy. You are on Twitter, aren't you? Is it at I'm, the Onion Goddess? Yes, I'm always on Twitter. Folks, go follow Jaffe. I'm, I'm going to try. I'm going to try give more content in English uh, now. So it might be something you won't have to hit the translate button for. So you know. To be honest, though, it's absolutely worth it. Gali, you've been brilliant as ever. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Have a good day. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.